Welcome to Not Your Father's Data Center Podcast, brought to you by Compass Data Centers. We build for what's next. Now here's your host, Raymond Hawkins. Welcome to another episode of Not Your Father's Data Center. I'm your host, Raymond Hawkins. Today, we are joined by Schneider Electric's Vice President of Innovation and Data Centers, Stephen Carlini. Stephen, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Very happy to be here. Stephen and I are recording today on April 8th, uh, the opening day of the Masters. So if I sound a bit distracted, it is not because the TV is on in my office um, at all. No, that couldn't be it. No, uh, we are recording. The world is coming out of a pandemic, and uh, you know, lots of vaccinations and things are changing. And uh, all right, well, a couple of reminders as we get going with the show. Reminder number one is we will do four trivia questions. We're going to do three trivia questions right at the beginning, and we'll do one at the end. And remember, all the people who email me the correct answers will be entered in a drawing to win a five hundred dollars Amazon gift card. Unfortunately, neither Stephen or I are eligible to win, <laughs> um, but you, you can uh, tweet your answers at Compass DCS, or you can email me at rhawkins at compassdatacenters.com. In honor of Stephen's background, all of today's trivia questions will be focused on Oklahoma football. Huh, so, great. well, uh, you don't get to answer, unfortunately, Stephen, but uh, the trivia questions one, two, three, and then we'll get rolling. Question number one, who has the most rushing yards in the history of Oklahoma football? Who has the most passing yards in the history of Oklahoma football? And who has the most receiving yards? Um, two of them, I, I think, uh, you know, I'm not surprised by any of the three answers, but two of them I could make the argument that I would have guessed someone else. So those are your first three trivia questions for all of our uh, data center listeners. And we'll get trivia question number four at the end. Email your answers again to me at rhawkins at compassdatacenters.com. All right, Stephen, let's let's get rolling. Um, love it if you would just give us a little bit of your background, uh, you know, all the way back to the, where's home, uh, how'd you get in the, the technology and, and power management business, and we'll uh, talk through, I think the best way when you and I spoke before, you handle everything from the medium voltage switch gear all the way out to outlets in the data center and how Schneider Electric thinks about innovation in those spaces. Uh, t tell us a little bit about you as we get rolling. I was I was born in, in Youngstown, Ohio. Grew up, uh, you know, in Cleveland initially. Then I then I moved out to um, moved out to Connecticut. Uh, my father was actually in the technology industry. He was he was with IBM, so we moved around quite a bit. We moved every four years like clockwork and ibm used to be called uh, i've been moved uh, back in those days because of how often uh, you would you would relocate and you know i had the opportunity when i was 10 years old to actually visit one of the first first ever data centers in existence in uh, new york uh, with my father he took me to the data center which was uh, really kind of a underground bunker uh, and data centers in in those days you know were just just getting started and then a lot of the data was a lot of personal information about people and they wanted to keep it very safe so there was a lot of emphasis put on security back in those days i then i went to uh, atlanta for for high schools so i partly claimed to be you know a georgian and after that i went to university of oklahoma and got an electrical engineering degree from there, uh, emphasized in power systems, which is kind of a an odd way to go. Most of the electrical engineers were mainly interested in electronics at the time, and Oklahoma had, you know, one of the few power system degrees for for electrical engineering. After that, I went to uh, Texas. 
um, actually in Houston. And I had my first job at Toshiba and I started as an engineer. And after nine years, uh, ended up running their, uh, their UPS power systems group uh, for uh, Toshiba International uh, out of Houston. And I also went to uh, University of Houston where I got my uh, MBA in international business. So this is amazing, Stephen, to me, a little bit uh, fascinating to me. I went to high school in Dayton, Ohio, so also in, in, oh, in Ohio. Wow. Uh, I lived in Atlanta for, for 16 years, and now I live in Dallas, so, so not Houston, but Texas. So very very similar uh, routes around the country, um, although I've not ended up in the Northeast uh, as you have now. But All right, so Toshiba, talk me through Toshiba to, uh, to what was next after that and then ultimately to Schneider. So Toshiba was 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 interesting and in in those days the whole UPS market was was really these these industrial companies. You had companies like Teledyne, CyberX and you had uh, a big focus on industrial systems for for UPSs. So it was all bid spec market, it was all uh, it was all very very much uh, in the realm of, of industrial systems, you know, how they were produced, who sold them, you know, they were sold direct, there was manufacturers, reps involved. At the time, you know, back in the in the 80s, there was a little upstart company called uh, American Power Conversion. And American Power Conversion kind of took a different different view on, on the whole market. And, you know, their, their idea was that uh, the IT systems uh, were going to evolve. And if you look at the history of IT, it very much goes from, you know, centralizing, you know, doing mainframes. And this was the start of what we call distributed IT, or, or back then it was called, you know, local area networks, distributed computing, basically servers. The old client server architecture started back then. And APC kind of jumped on that. They saw that that's where the market was going. And they, you know, formed relationships with a lot of the IT vendors and, and the IT channel. And it kind of caught everybody by surprise uh, that the market kind of shifted. And APC did a great job. And the reason, you know, I'm bringing up APC is because, you know, I had a, a staff of people working for me. I ran sales. I ran um, operations. I ran field service. I ran marketing. And and engineering as well. So I was the general manager of the Toshiba UPS group and person by person, they started moving over to, to American Power Conversion, APC. And, you know, they started uh, trickling over there and then a massive wave of people went over to American Power Conversion. And then the software company that we were using for management of the systems, so it was System Enhancement out of St. Louis, uh, APC ended up uh, purchasing them. So I had a great relationship with them. So when I went over to APC, you know, nine years later, uh, after starting with Toshiba, it was basically a homecoming for me because I knew, you know, a lot of the people over there were my ex-employees and the software group that I used to work with was, was all over there too. So it was it was a transition for me and i i went over there and i was in charge of the what they call the core product and at, and at that time uh apc only had smaller ups systems which were you know the smart ups uh, they had the matrix was the first modular ups ever made and then the symmetra so there were there were no you know data center sized ups at the time 
and they hired me to initially run the uh, core product group and i ran that and then a few years later we really ran out of uh market potential i mean we did a tremendous job of expanding our sales globally to the point where we had uh, depending on the, the geo, you know, 30 to 70% market share. So it was a, you know, incredible market share. So we ran out of, we ran out of runway for, for expansion. So that's when, you know, we decided to move into the larger UPS and I was involved with one of the, uh, first acquisitions of a company in Denmark that actually, uh, manufactured a three phase UPS and the technology of the three-phase UPS that they had uh, was called a, a Delta conversion uh, UPS. So that was kind of new and innovative in the market. And, you know, it was my job to kind of, you know, build out that group and build out the uh, the expansion. And that was kind of the start of our, you know, venture into the data center world, larger data center world. So that got you into the big systems, and then along comes Schneider. Didn't didn't Schneider end up buying APC? And I apologize, I, I, my memory. Isn't that how that went down? It was actually right on day or two before after Valentine's Day. I don't remember the exact date, but it was 15 years ago now. So it's been it's been quite a while since that acquisition. It was a six billion dollar um, acquisition, and it was a little bit of a surprise, you know, to to the people at APC that because the the company had done done very very well. Uh, the other thing that APC did is they kind of changed the game. You know, when there when there's a game, there's bid spec market, there's entrenched competitors. What you want to do is look at look at the game and how it's being played. And if possible, you know, go ahead and change it. You know, the things that we, we did, which were unheard of at the time, is we started packaging together uh, data center systems. So the power, the UPS, the power distribution, the rack systems, the cooling systems, uh, all of the environmental systems, like the access control and the environmental uh, sensors for, you know, humidity and and temperature, the door locks, and you know, we we started packaging those all together and offering them as systems. And when you offer them as systems, there's a lot of value added, you know, resellers and integrators that you know weren't exactly very happy with this because we were taking, you know, a lot of the work they were charging for and providing it for free. And then the other thing that we did is we made the systems so they were, you know, user serviceable. So we made them modular. So Instead of, you know, having to dispatch a service technician, you could keep, you know, power modules, battery modules, you know, on site. And whenever you had an issue, you could easily replace them yourself. So that was a really changing the game of, of the design, the plan design and deploy model, which was, you know, very, very disruptive, you know, at the time. But, you know, we had nothing to lose because we didn't really have, you know, a presence in, in those markets. We were huge in the you know, distributed, you know, single server, you know, in an office environment, but in the in the bigger data centers, we, we really had nothing. So what years are we talking about when you guys started offering those integrated pieces in the data center? That was originally it was it was called power structure. And that was roughly uh, 20 years ago. And then we changed the name to infrastructure when we added more and more components to it. We added, you know, software management was also a big feature of that. So everything was, you know, packaged together. 
And one of the advantages of packaging together when you're building a data center, a lot of times, you know, it's it's not like you could build 90% of it and have it function. It has to be 100% complete for it to work. And a lot of times there were pieces left off, pieces forgot, or pieces on back ordered. So taking a, a system, you know, approach to that uh, really, you know, eliminated a lot of the risk for deployment and, and an operation. We still do today, by the way. We still do that. Uh, you, you could have your pre-configured systems. And then we looked at even prefabricating, which is, which is uh, something where, you know, you take the concept and instead of assembling on site with all the pieces, you actually put it together in a factory and ship it on site. So it really is very favorable from a supply chain perspective. Stephen, I got to say, I had not thought about part of APC's success was really the timing around uh, as as we left, you know, monolithics, you know, centralized compute as we left mainframes and service mm -hmm. bureaus and started having the client server model and and distributing compute. I hadn't thought about that going hand in hand with APC's growth and acceleration and, and capturing of the market, but it, it is a great um, point to think about that those two events coinciding were just uh, really, really beneficial to APC, right? As, as we got away from everybody running terminals, I know that's a, a term that a lot of people <laughs> that listen to our podcast won't remember, but everybody running dumb terminals wired back to uh, a mainframe as we got away from that and put personal computers in everybody's desk and then connected those to servers. That all happened right as APC took off. I, I hadn't even thought about that being a big catalyst for APC. Yeah, and it's it's something that you know you know Novell at the time you know Novell networking was was, was yeah. starting up and partnering up with with Novell and Novell was one of the first companies to actually certify you know a UPS as compatible and built in UPS management into their systems. I mean later Microsoft did as well, but Novell was 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 way ahead then. It was kind of funny because you know the technology of the UPS is. You know, wasn't you know the other the other thing in the industry was it had to be a double conversion online for it to work, and computer power supplies had advanced you know a lot uh, during those days, and they could actually you know they actually had capacitors so they could ride through a certain amount of outage, uh, but nobody believed it. So our sales guys used to carry around these suitcases. They were called these blackout boxes. And they would hook them up to, to computers and light bulbs, and they would actually have a little, you know, a little um, voltage regulator, and they turn the voltage down, the UPS would switch, the light bulb would stay on, or the computer would stay on. Oh, so wow. It was, it was, you literally you know, had to demonstrate it for people. Wow. Absolutely yeah. had to demonstrate it, or they didn't believe it. it. It is amazing to think how much things have changed, that, that the concept of, hey, we can keep you running on that battery long enough for you to get your backup power source online. I mean, that, 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 that wasn't even a thing. No one even understood it at the time. It's fascinating. Blackout boxes. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let me prove it to you here. <laughs> so did you just have a little model built into the, into this case that had us a, a, a little UPS in it enough to run yes. a light bulb and the, and exactly. awesome. How great. Boy, those I, I look today, and you know, I see some of the original Mac Lisas and the Apple, uh, you know, two Cs, and so the, some of those early compute devices. I bet if you could find one of those um, blackout boxes, that'd be a cool um, technology history compete component today. In the APC, you know, headquarters, they actually had a showcase, and they had like the first UPS APC ever built, and they had one of the blackout boxes too. Yeah, yeah, that'd be awesome to see. 
we literally had to turn thing a light bulb off for people. That's pretty cool. Good. Okay, so that's APC. The Schneider acquisition comes in, and now uh, it's not just UPSs and and um, and managing people's uh, downtime. It's all things Schneider from medium voltage all the way out to the outlets. So so in the world of innovation, what, what things are interesting, fascinating? What's going on at Schneider, and and what are you and your team who are always thinking about the future? What's what's got uh, y- y'all's mind share today? Yeah, that's a that's a good question because there's you know what I do is kind of kind of look at you know what are the trends that are going to take place, not necessarily what's you know what's happening now. The acquisition of APC was was an interesting one from a from a cultural perspective because. You know, Schneider at that time and still is, it's, it's more of a global company now. Uh, but when they bought us, the headquarters, you know, are still in, you know, out, right outside of Paris, France. Uh, but a lot of the executive committee now works in, you know, Hong Kong and then some in the U.S. So it's spread across the world. Uh, but at that time, you know, primarily a very, uh, very industrial company that uh, liked to have markets, you know, proven out. Uh, before they jumped into everything, so much more conservative than APC. APC was out to was out to show that, that there was a better way to do things. So there was a little bit of you know a lot of cultural learning between the, the companies, and and Schneider actually had a big um, uh, power protection group already through the acquisition of Merlandron or MGE. We had to merge those two uh, groups together. So we went through we went through that that process. And Schneider, the way they think of data centers uh, is kind of more of a larger standalone system because, you know, all the data center work that, that had been done at Schneider was was focused on the, on the larger systems. So there was also, a, you know, a merging of, of the whole solution, like we talked about, from medium voltage to lower volt, low voltage switch gear, the big mechanical cooling systems like chiller plants that, that are outside, then going into the IT room. So the way we look at data centers is is kind of three domains. You have the, the power domain, which also has you know big bus bars, you know as well. So you have the switch gear, you have the bus bars, uh, then you have the the power panels, you know feeding you know the data centers, and then the IT room, you know where you have the you know power distribution that sits on you know what used to be still is the white space, uh, you know fewer and fewer raised floors anymore, but Still is the white space, and then we have the the, the uh, cooling or what we call the building systems, and then Schneider's approach. You know, we want to look at the entire data centers as an individual systems. There has been this you know tendency of the industry to have these silos. Uh, between the power, you know, the cooling and the IT room. So there's the power domain, the IT room, and the cooling systems and building systems. Those are the three way the way Schneider thinks about. It. Okay, I just want to make sure I got it right. Okay. Yeah, those are those are the three systems. So from a from a technology perspective, you know, we've been on a mission to make a very very large amount of uh, solutions, you know, to support those systems. But then we're on a mission to connect those solutions as well. So connect them, you know, to a management system. And not just monitor the solutions, but I'll provide more, you know, more useful information. So taking all the systems, you know, looking at the performance of the system, number one, also looking at issues that, you know, you know, alerts and alarming, but also look at uh, analytics. So make sure, you know, the systems are, you know, operating as intended, but also are not at risk of failing. 
So running analytics on the system, you know, you have the ability to, to do, you know, advanced warning when systems are about to fail. So for example, if you have a transformer that's, you know, the heat is, is starting to rise and it's in the, you know, starting to get into a danger zone, you know, we can generate not only an alert, but also a recommendation either take some load off the transformer, depending on, you know, your situation, of course, but it could be that that transformer is failing and breakers are nearing capacity, you know, recommend taking some load off those or some batteries, you know, on the on the UPS side are the big one, because having any kind of advanced warning of battery failures is is huge. If you get a you know, notification that, you know, 70% chance the batteries are going to fail, next three months then you can make a decision of what what you want to do but you know we also would provide recommendations and the way that the system works is we we advanced it to the point where you do receive the recommendations and depending on your relationship with schneider you know you can have the ability to to talk live to you know a service representative you know through text or phone or however you want, and then integrating the, you know, repairs or the service dispatch, you know, with the monitoring system is kind of, it's, it's, it's what we're doing now. And we're, and we're doing that across, you know, all three, three domains of the data center. Steven, as I think about power to the IT room, where's that demarcation? Is it, is it the bus bar? Is it the rack? At what point do I think, okay, I'm now IT room from a domain perspective and I'm no longer power? You know, it varies. From a technology perspective, we are trying to blend all these these silos together. So we are giving companies the ability to to look at the different power systems in the IT room and the power systems, you know, in, in the in the electrical room together through the same systems. You know, there's obviously a lot of organizational constructs that exist. You know, companies like Compass that you know are in the data center business, you know, they may benefit from not having these these organizational silos, but other other companies do. So we are giving people the ability to like to merge the systems and the and the management of those systems together and, and integrate them all. Uh, but I would say, you know, looking at it, you know, where it breaks from a building system or, or a power system to the IT room is, you know, whatever's sitting, you know, on the IT floor. If you have your PDUs like sitting on the on the white space or the IT room floor, you know, that's part of the IT room. If it's a panel kind of feeding the IT room, then that's, you know, still considered power, part of the power system in the building, usually by a lot of companies. Gotcha. But like I said, we're trying to, you know, we're trying to, you know, eliminate those walls and make it, you know, one one happy. Yeah, well-coordinated, monitor, monitored system. No, I, I like the integration of the three domains, but also thinking about how they're they're unique um, is, is fascinating. Yeah, panel and PDU seems to be the right demarcation point. I just wanted to talk that out with you a little. All right, so let's, uh, the, the things that, that keep you and your team up at night, not what's like, I like the way you said it, not what's happening today, but what might happen in the future. What are the things that might happen in the future that would interest us and, and uh, that, that you think are fascinating and exciting and things you got to figure out? Well, from a data center perspective, I, I would say the whole hybrid architecture of data centers, you know, it used to be that, you know, companies had a single data center and then cloud came, came into existence and there started to be a hybrid environment, you know, you run, you know, there was the whole, the whole movement to the cloud, which, which, ha which happened uh, relatively quickly. There was a, there was a lot of uh, movement, but there was a lot of discussions. I remember being on panels with, with people, you know, 15 years ago and talking about cloud and, you know, we were trying to explain, you know, what, what exactly is a cloud? 
you know, how does it work? Yeah, this platform is a service, infrastructure is a service, software is a service, and it really confused a lot of people. I think now people really understand, but at the time it was it was kind of a mystery on what this cloud was and how it worked. You know, a lot of companies, you know, they offloaded all of, you know, their email, you know, their email systems, their, you know, their their HR systems, everything that was kind of easy. And then they got to the point where they just couldn't offload anymore. So we end up in uh you know, it's usually usually some kind of operation or CRM systems, you know, that you can't, you know, offload to clouds or you have these hybrid architectures. So hybrid architectures, you know, are, are a little bit more difficult to manage. So, you know, we've invested a lot in, in building our data center infrastructure management solutions to be able to, you know, work across the different domains. And the one thing that's, you know, we were looking at that's really starting to gain momentum is, you know, the move to edge and everyone's talking about move to edge. But I remember talking, you know, five years ago at some data center conferences about, you know, this move to the edge. And there was so many skeptics and people, you know, were telling me I was crazy. And there was just, you know, really a negative kind of backlash, you know, oh, it doesn't make any sense. You know, you had John Chambers saying that the world only needed one data center and the, the network would take care of, you know, everything else. Uh, but you know, you know, as I said earlier, you go through all these cycles, and we seem to be in the at the beginning of the uh, movement to the edge cycle. And you have a lot of the cloud providers that are you know moving closer to the edge. They've been doing that for four or five years into into kind of urban areas or what we call a regional edge. Uh, now we're talking local edge or moving moving things really really close to where the where the users are and where the data is being generated. So it doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, you have these these new communication technologies that are coming up like 5G and Wi-Fi 6, and you're going to have the ability to leverage a lot more uh, a lot more technology that's going to leverage you know high definition cameras, which are going to generate a tremendous amount of of data. And you don't want to be you want you don't want to be sending any of that hundreds of miles, thousands of miles to you know larger data centers. You want these edge data centers uh, to be able to process uh, the data and then you know discard uh, you know you know what's used. Just take the results. It was interesting. You know, an example is is uh, agriculture. A couple of years ago, you know, when IoT was kind of the kind of the buzzword, people were were you know metering their, or or putting all these IoT sensors, thousands of them of them in their, you know, in their you know agriculture site, whether it was a vineyard or any kind of produce. And today, what they do is they use these high definition cameras, and they could be stationary or they could be through drones that are communicating high definition video. So if you're looking at, you know, moisture content, fertilizer content, you know, how much sun, you know, the crops are getting, you don't need to have these thousands of sensors. You could actually do it with with high definition video. You could actually look at the plant and see what kind of condition it is, it's in and what kind of, uh, you know, attention it needs. If it needs more water, it needs more fertilizer, needs more sun, needs less sun, you know, things like that are all going to move to uh, video. It's all going to move to video, which is really going to drive uh, more and more edge computing. The other thing that's going to drive more and more edge computing is, you know, the contact, contactless, touch-free society that's kind of emerging. So we have this, you know, this 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 contact society. I mean, it was kind of innovative to go to restaurants and, you know, they have the touch screens. Now the touch screens are kind of taboo. You know, no one wants to touch anything. So it's going to be gestures and, and voice and, and facial recognition. So there's going to be a tremendous 
amount of facial recognition that's going to be popping up and a lot more. The hospitality industry, the food service industry, the transportation industry especially, are all going to be re- uh, leveraging this, this facial recognition. In facial recognition, there's kind of, you know, been a... Uh, a little bit of a you know hesitancy because of you know privacy issues and people are 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 you know a little bit worried about it but I, you know i think for you know society to be able to to go through this digital transformation to a contactless touch free we're going to we're going to have to use more facial recognition to, to enable that. Stephen, I'm going to go back to something you said just a little bit ago. You were talking about um, we're going to have more and more video with, with 5G yeah. and Wi-Fi 6. We're going to be able to handle much uh, more uh, much richer content. I liked your agricultural example. Instead of me asking a sensor to tell me what the humidity is, why don't I just look at the plant? I mean, I, that, that yeah. makes that's an easy one for me to get my arms around. Uh, as I think about edge computing, I, I hear lots of people talk about that the edge is about pushing the compute function as close to the user as possible from a latency perspective. And and I thought your answer, uh, I, I tend to think that it's less about that and it's more about the cost of backhaul, that if yeah. you take all of that data at the at the endpoint and push it all the way back to a centralized data center, especially as the uh, as the richness and the, and the size, the quantity of the content gets bigger and bigger and bigger, it's backhaul avoidance is what I think makes the edge makes sense because all of that backhaul cost would be through the roof. If, I mean, even if it's a short video clip, having to send that to your point hundreds or thousands of miles away and then decide what to do with it and then send it back is just cost prohibitive. I think it's the uh, just what you described, the ability to decide, analyze, evaluate, decide as close as possible so that we can avoid backhaul is as big a driver, if not more, for the edge. What's your thoughts on that? I don't think it's transparent to a lot of people that there's cost involved with, with, with this backhaul. And, and I've tried to explain it and, and it kind of just does default to the latency that people can kind of get their arms around. But even even though I think people are using latency wrong, because latency is really not speed, it's it's the amount of jitter and freezing that's that's caused by, right. by the latency. But you're, you're absolutely right. There's a tremendous amount of cost if you're going to spend that much data over these lines. And there's also the issue of network congestion. Just simple capacity will cause a problem. That's right. Exactly. I mean, you you, you take this incredibly rich, high-definition video and, and fly it over every farm in the country and then try to analyze it, the network's just going to shut down. It's just too much content. It's just right. too heavy. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the network infrastructure is so established in our country, we can't and this is when I go back to my early days in the compute business, we used to talk about that we would move the bottleneck in the in the computer around, right? At one point, the processors weren't fast enough, so we'd focus on the processor. And once the processor got faster, then the busway would be not fast enough. So you'd focus yeah. on the busway, and then the memory wasn't fast enough, so you'd focus on the memory. And that's how, so we were just moving the electronic bottleneck around the computer and, and addressing it wherever we found the resistance. Well, that's kind of what, on a macro scale, that's a bit of what I think about when I think about edge and 5G and, and, and Wi-Fi 6, we're, we're going to run into an electronic inhibitor by just sheer volume in the network. Right. Which is going to force us to do things at the edge. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, when, when we talk about 5G, it's another area that's not well understood. And, you know, you know, there's a lot of a lot of talk about 5G and how it's already been rolled out and there's nationwide coverage of 5G. Uh, but that's that's low band 5G. That's 600, 700 megahertz 5G. It's not the ultra reliable, low latency millimeter wave 5G that's going to enable 
these these new technologies because to process video and move video, the low band 5G and 4G are pretty much the same. There's no advantage of using, you know, low band 5G over over 4G for that application. The, you know, ultra reliable low latency millimeter wave or high band 5G, you know, people were calling it 5G plus, you know, it's it's a different technology because of the the frequencies that it operates at the millimeter waves are you know much much faster frequency but they they don't they don't travel well so you need the the ran or the antenna array to be very very close to the application and it has to be line of sight you can't have any obstruction in the way you can't even have you know some of the testing you know trees with leaves and so it's not really suitable for anything like inside of a building uh, because you have to have this line of sight and you have to have uh, from the data center side. And the reason I was involved for the World Economic Forum program was because you need you need many more of these what they call MEC data centers, which are mobile edge compute, mobile edge cloud, multi-access edge. So, you know, people call them different things, but they're MEC data centers. And for high band 5G to operate, uh, right now you have, you know, a 4G base station and you see them. You know, a mile and a half, two miles apart. But you're going to need for for 5G to operate. You're going to need for the cluster. You're going to need three to five times more of those, depending on how much uh, activity you have in your network. So you're going to have to have uh, the additional incremental data centers to be able to operate. You know, the high band 5G. And in a the city, they they're going to be on you know building building tops, you know parking garages, basements. They're going to be deployed everywhere. And because, you know, of this little pandemic that we had, you know, the governments were focused on, you know, different different issues. So that kind of stalled a lot of the, the testing and the initial rollouts of the of the higher band 5G for, for urban applications. So it's gonna be a long, a long journey to deploy uh, 5G, you know, at scale. And there's also the business case issue that you know, has to be addressed when, when de- deploying all these these data centers. There's the business issue, and it's the issue of, you know, who who's going to do it and who's going to manage all of these these data centers. Yeah, Stephen, I think we get a little bit wrapped up in the consumer concept of 5G yeah. of, oh, my phone says it's 5G. The the ultimate high performance and the things that we're going to really be able to do with, with enhanced 5G or 5G plus you know, at its absolute highest performance, the infrastructure to support it is astronomical. Yeah. I, I heard an estimate somewhere that, that globally to convert everything, the whole network to 5G would be a $12 trillion 10-year project. And uh, just, you know, that was just somebody's estimate. But the, the, I think the spirit of that is correct. It's big. It's big, expensive, and going to take a long time. Yeah, that's if you have anybody working on it too. So yeah, you know, right, right. <laughs> they have to be like that's an estimate with with everybody completely focused on it. And what happened during the pandemic was there was a big push to to just increase the capacity of the current technologies. The other technology of five G that's you know that's that makes it interesting is that it's really software defined where. Where you know the IT is you know disaggregated from the software, which is great, and the IT will run on standard uh, IT systems that are that are more AC, where the 4G is you know specialized like 
like DC systems. But what happened during the pandemic was there was a huge build out of, you know, 4G LTE and Advanced Pro and Advanced Pro Plus. So there was a lot more capacity added to, you know, the traditional type of uh, telco infrastructure. Well, Stephen, this has been super awesome. We're going to get our fourth trivia question in uh, in our Ode to Oklahoma um, and we'll, we'll, we'll wrap up. So, so first three questions were in uh, Oklahoma football history, number one rushing yards, number one passing yards, number one in receiving yards. So those three, I'm certain Stephen could guess all of those on his own. And then who is the winningest coach in Oklahoma history? So oh. no answers. Email us your answers. Those four. We'll do a drawing for the four uh, for anyone who gets the four correct, and um, you'll get a five hundred dollars Amazon gift card. Stephen, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate you talking about uh, Schneider's view of the world and what's going on, and also what's coming. And we uh, appreciate hearing your background and your history. This has been great, uh, and uh, we look forward to doing uh, more business together with you guys in the future. You guys are uh, ha- handle uh, the vast majority of our power systems, and we really appreciate it. Thank you for that. Yeah, thanks, Randy. It was great, great to be, be here talking to you today. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Stephen. I appreciate it. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye.